is a joyous time of year. I actually have kind of a funny story to tell you. It's a true story. I have three pairs of glasses that I use, uh, and uh, these are my preaching glasses. These are ones you guys always see me in. Then I have a pair in my car for when I'm out at appointments or here at the church, and then uh, a third pair at home that I use to study. Uh, recently, my pair at home broke, and I had already had them repaired once at a glasses shop, and uh, thought, oh, they're just getting old. So I, uh, I, I went to a, 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 just a, a glasses place and, and ordered a new pair of glasses. And when I was there, I, uh, I, you know, I, I had the young pastors always tell me I need to get more trendy. You can see where this is going. And they, uh, so I, I decided to text Rustin, who's the pastor of our venue. <laughs> And I said, send me a picture of you with your glasses. And he did, and I showed it to the, to the gal at the, uh, it was at Walmart, and, I, and, and she looked at me like, no. And, <laughs> but I was insistent. I said, no, I, I, wanna, I wanna look like this. And so I, uh, I, I bought them. And, uh, and then I, I wore them uh, the next day to church. There, there are these glasses here. And uh, I wore these to the office, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and somebody said, you know, um, wh why did you get new glasses? And I said, you know, I'm trying to look trendy. I, I want to look like Rustin and Derek and those guys. And, and he told me about my bubble. He said, well, you, you look like Drew Carey. And uh, so, <laughs> true story. <laughs> and so I, I immediately took them off. And I said to my wife that night, I said two things. One, I, I'm not wearing those things in public again. They'll stay at home. And secondly, I'm losing weight after Christmas. So... <laughs> You guys can pray for me on that one, but I tell you, God keeps you humble, doesn't he? It's, it's really funny, and so, well, you know, I, I want to give you a pastoral encouragement real quick before we uh, pray and go into the Word. I, I really, there's times that you guys do things as you just follow the Lord that totally, totally blow me away and encourage me, and what happened this year through Winter Wonder with the offering, uh, and, and you know, really all of it goes toward these three Title I schools here in Scottsdale that really have great needs, and um, you, you guys blew me away. I mean, we, 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 we were hoping that we'd reach $75,000 to give some really wonderful gifts to uh, these schools, but $145,000, I mean, when I heard that number, I was, I mean, I, I look back on that and I say, only God. And, and he used you to do that. And so I can't thank you enough as your pastor for following the Lord in that and for your generosity. And uh, I will add that as we get, go into our year end, uh, you know, continue to be generous. We, uh, we do have some significant needs with Compelled by Grace to finish up and other things. And so uh, we would like you to continue to be cognizant of that and look in the bulletin as you ask God uh, what you want him to do. That that last part was asked for me by the elders to do that. So that's why I did that. So, uh, but we do need to do that. And uh, I know you guys care about your church. Uh, about six months ago, I had a, a, a vision for a, what we want to do here at Christmas. And I explained to you guys a few weeks ago, it was Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Schrader did a great job last week talking to us about Joseph. We looked at Mary two weeks ago. We're now at the mountaintop. And we're going to talk about the Son of God. Jesus, as we all enter into this Christmas week. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, I do thank you for uh, the people of God here today at Cactus Mountain Valley, the venue chapel, and Lord here at Shea. I thank you, God, that as one body in Christ, uh, you've called us to unity, to focus, to faith, to love. And, and Lord, we've seen that through the winter wonder. We pray that you would use the gifts that we have given to our community uh, to be uh, a light 
to them, uh, to be love to them, and encouragement, hope to them, and to let them know that there's a church here focused on Christ that stands with them. I pray, God, that as we now turn uh, our attention to your word and to your son, Jesus Christ, that God, for some of us, may we understand him rightly for the very first time here today. May we understand what the incarnation and the deity of Jesus Christ, these very, very important topics, are about. And Lord, for the rest of us, may you cement and encourage our faith in you and solidify us for the Christmas week ahead, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the question that I've put in the title to our message today is, I think, the most important question any person on planet Earth could ever ask, and I'm not overstating it that way, it's the question, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Many of you know this, but when you do a poll of Americans uh, today, about 75% of Americans across the board, 300 million people, uh, believe in God. And that's down from a few decades ago where you had as many as 90% of Americans believing in God, but still three out of four Americans today believe in God when they are polled. But when it comes to Jesus, as many of you know, it's a whole different story. Uh, the stats are obviously much less. In fact, the most recent data from 2013 finds that just over 50% of baby boomers, so uh, some of us older folks, uh, believe in Jesus, and less than 50% of millennials, the younger generation, believe in Jesus. So the statistics drop significantly when you go from God to Jesus. I have a friend back in Chagrin Falls where I'm from that kind of epitomizes this mindset. He tells me on a regular basis, we've been friends since third grade, that, you know, hey, you, you Christians, like, you muddy the waters when you talk about Jesus. <laughs> he says, you know, the vast majority of Americans believe in God, and we're all kind of unified at, and you guys come into the ring, and you start talking about Jesus this and Jesus that, and he says, and it just complicates everything. And, and obviously, there's not as many people that believe in Jesus. And so he eventually gets to the question where he looks at me and says, why Jesus? I mean, why do you Christians always talk about Jesus? I mean, you know, you know Jews had a, had a religious leader, Moses. They don't go crazy on him. You know, why is it that everything comes back to Jesus? And I think it's a good question. I think it is good for you and I to have a clear answer as to why Christianity for 2,000 years now has been rabid, if you will, overdosed on Jesus as the core and center of our faith. And so what I want to do today as we enter into this Christmas week is clearly answer the question for all of us, why Jesus? And to do so, we're going to look at a rather unorthodox verse for Christmas or chapter. Uh, it's the chapter out of Hebrews chapter 1. It, usually we might look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John when it comes to a Christmas understanding of Jesus. But in the book of Hebrews, uh, this book was written to help people understand very clearly who Jesus is and what he is about. And in Hebrews chapter 1, in my opinion, it is the most clear explanation of who Jesus is in both his identity as well as in his actions that you can find, at least in a synopsis form, in all of the New Testament. 
And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 today. And the very first thing that this book does as it answers the question why Jesus is lay this out. Look at the opening sentences of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, God has spoken to us. Man, you can't get more simple as a starting place than that. For those who have wondered, does God exist? Has he reached out to us? Has he said anything to us? The book of Hebrews starts right there. And it says God exists and God has spoken to us. But then look at what it says next. Let's look at the other three words onto this. God has spoken to us in his son. And that's a significant phrase. They actually will go on in the next few sentences. We read it earlier to talk about how in the past God spoke in various ways through men like prophets and things like that. But in these latter days, meaning 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to this earth, God chose to speak to us through his son. So watch this. Whatever the book of Hebrews is going to lay out, (laughs) here's what it's going to do. It's going to say everything centers on Jesus. Everything's going to center on this son. Why? Because God has chosen to speak to us and he has done so through his son. We're back to all that Jesus stuff again. And the question then becomes, why? Why did God choose to do this and what are the implications of this? And the rest of chapter 1 goes on to answer this. So two things that this chapter tells us about why Jesus is so important in coming to know God. And the first reason is this. It's an identity reason, and it's because of who he is. Simply put, when you look at the identity of who Jesus is, you begin to see why he is so central to our understanding of spirituality, religion, and certainly of Christianity. So so let me ask you this. Have you ever met somebody and not realized who it is you're talking to? Have you ever had that experience? Uh, Some of you have, some of you haven't. I, uh, years ago when I was interning at a large church in Chicago, just starting out in the ministry, uh, after the service, Kim and I had been married about a year, this elderly gentleman came up to us and asked us if we liked the worship service that we were just in. And, And this church, it was Willow Creek Community Church, it's a very large church, about twice the size of this room. And uh, we said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm interning in this church, and I, I like the, uh, the service. And uh, he, he was obviously moved, this older guy, and he had a tear in his eye. He said, well, I, I was very moved by, by the worship service we just experienced. I didn't know what to say, so I said, I'm, I'm Jamie. And he said, my name's Lyle, uh, Lyle Schaller. And, and I looked at him, and I said, you mean, you mean the author? And he said, yeah. And I said, Kim, th- this is Lyle Schaller. And she was like, you guys, who's Lyle Schaller? You know, I mean... It's not like, you know, we're, we're, we're in front of a football player or anything, but I just come out of seminary, and Lyle Schaller at that time was probably the foremost expert in the world on church growth and on church management, and had written tons of books on this, and, and here he was visiting Willow Creek, probably scoping things out, and I got to bump into him. So I went from just talking to a normal, everyday, older guy to realizing I was in the presence of Lyle Schaller. That's the closest to a celebrity I've ever come. Here's the point. Uh, Many people hear and learn about Jesus today. The vast majority of Americans, even the vast majority of church people, obviously have heard and know about Jesus. But here's the sad thing. They don't have any idea who it is they're really confronting. 
Because here's what the Bible's gonna say about his identity, who he is. Now watch this, he is God come to earth. There's no other way to say it. He is the God of the universe. Let's be clear on who that is. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-sufficient creator and sustainer of all that we see and do, do not see, God come to this planet. It's what theologians call the incarnation, which simply means to be incarnate into another form. God come to this earth, the deity of Jesus Christ. And you're saying, really, is that true? Is that really who Jesus is? It really is. Uh, Hebrews 1 wants us to, to fully understand this idea of the incarnation. Uh, look at some of the direct references to who Jesus is in the book of Hebrews. Uh, give me another click here. It says in verse 3, and he, meaning Jesus, is the exact representation of his, meaning God's, nature. Uh, two words you want to focus on here to help you understand this very, very simple but profound phrase, representation and nature. Uh, that word representation in the Greek simply means an exact copy. It, it was used at that time to chisel in stone an image in which you were copying from another image. And so it's an exact duplicate. That's what the word representation means here. And lest we understand the full meaning here, that word nature it is the Greek word hypostasis that literally means substance or real essence. So what it's saying is, is that Jesus is the exact copy of his, God's nature or substance. It's very poetic language, but clear, saying this guy is God. And then look at verse 6. Just skip the quote and go on to verse 6, guys. It says, again, and when he, again, brings the firstborn into the world, he being God, it brings the firstborn into the world, meaning Jesus, he, God, says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And it's quoting Psalm 97, verse 7. Now, now, to understand what this is getting at here, let me ask a very, very simple question that will bring you back to your Sunday school days. Uh, does anybody here know what the first commandment of the Big Ten Commandments out of Deuteronomy 5 is? Uh, you shall have, somebody said it. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's look at it because this is very important with what Hebrews is saying. Deuteronomy 5 verses 7 through 9 says, and some of you quoted it directly, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the first commandment. God basically says, you got lots of spiritual choices out there. <laughs> lots of things are going to vie for your attention. Don't buy into any of that. I am the only God. You shall have no other gods before me. You aren't to worship anything or anyone but me. Now, here's my point. If this is the clear first commandment in the Old Testament, then why in the world would the New Testament come along and while quoting the Old Testament itself, Psalm 97, 7, talk about angels as one who worship Jesus if he himself was not God, right? 
I mean, let's just be logical about this. It would be the ultimate sin. It would be the most basic and fundamental flaw any writer in the New Testament could make. And so either Hebrews 1 is telling us here that Jesus is God himself when it says that the angels worship him or it's committing one of the most blatant blunders a Jewish writer could make, one that quite frankly deserved death by stoning, according to the Old Testament. The angels worship Jesus, and you don't worship anything or anyone but God. It's a direct reference to who Jesus is. So you got the exact representation of God's nature in Jesus. You got the angels worshiping him. And if that's not enough for you, look at a third direct reference in verse 8 here. It says, but of the Son, he, God, says, your throne, say it with me, O God, is forever and ever. So again, there you got it. You got him quoting again the Old Testament, Psalm 45, I think it is. And in this setting here, God says, your throne, O God, is forever. And again, some people have tried to weasel out of this one by saying, well, yeah, you know, it does say Jesus is God, but it doesn't mean like God in the sense of the God. It means like God in the sense of a small g, somebody who has God-like qualities. The only problem with that thinking is that this is the Greek word theos, that occurs 1,300 times in the New Testament, and you can look at every instance of theos in the New Testament, it never refers to a human being. It always refers to God. And so add it all up. Jesus is the exact representation of God, the full substance and nature of God in him. He is the one whom the angels worship, and he's called God literally and unashamedly. These are clear and unambiguous references to who Jesus is, he's God. And then very quickly, as if all that were not enough, I'll show you why this is so important in a minute, but but real quickly, then you have the descriptions of Jesus (laughs) in Hebrews 1. And the question I'm going to ask you in just about two minutes here is when you read descriptions like this, who do you think of? Look at these descriptions of Jesus. In verse 2 it says he's the heir of all things meaning he somehow is going to inherit everything, all things, someday after creation is done. Then in verse 2, speaking of creation, it says, through whom also he, Jesus, made the world. And then verse 10, you, Lord, referring to Jesus, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So somehow Jesus is the author of all creation. Hang on to that and look at what some of the other descriptions. It says in verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory. Continue on. In verse uh, 3, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So there's this all-powerful omnipotence motif going on with Jesus. Verse 4, he's much better than the angels, the highest celestial beings. Uh, Continue on. And then in verse 12, it says, you are the same and your years will not come to an end. So Jesus is eternal in nature. Here's my simple question. When you see descriptions like this of somebody, who or what do you think of? See, See, I think of God. I don't think of just another spiritual holy person. (laughs) There's some very godly religious leaders down through the years. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Bunyan. I mean, some great spiritual giants. And I use lots of words to describe these, these icons of history when it comes to church leadership and pastoral leadership and theological leadership. Here's my point. I'd never use words like these to describe them. <laughs> 
I wouldn't say you're the heir of all things, your years will never end, and you're omnipotent. No, these are words that we use to describe God. Uh, these are words that we use to describe deity. And, and so it just seems really clear to me that when you ask the question, who is Jesus? He's God. Now, here's the issue before we move on I want us to wrestle with. Why is all this important? Now, why must you and I be clear on this in our own understanding and then even help those around us that may wonder about this, that ask us why Jesus, uh, understand that he is God? Why is that important? And, and here's one of the main reasons. And that is that many, many people today are trying to come to God, and that's a good thing. Augustine said there's a God-shaped vacuum inside all of us that isn't satisfied until it is filled by God himself, and I believe that. So lots of people thirst for God in their own way, but the problem is they're not coming to God as he has revealed himself. They're not coming to God as he is. And that's why God came to this planet in Jesus to show us who he is and what he is like. But when you refuse to see Jesus for who he is, you're going to be very confused about God in general. Let me give you an illustration that might help us understand just the, the, the philosophical nature of this point. Um, Tom Schrader, uh, our friend, was here preaching last week on Joseph and did a fantastic job. And I was here in the audience with all of you uh, listening to him. And uh, say after the service today, I'm sitting in a restaurant and a person comes up to me and just says, excuse me, aren't you the pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church? And I'd say, yeah, that's me. And he said, you're Tom Schrader. I, I heard you speak last week. And I'd look at him and say, no, no, it's a simple mistake. I said, you know, Schrader was here last week, but, you know, uh, I'm actually the pastor of the church. He was a guest speaker, and I spoke this week, and he spoke that week, last week. And what if in some insane way he said, no, 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 you're the one who's confused. You're the guy who spoke last week. I saw you there. You're short. You're pudgy. You're kind of funny. You're not a bad speaker. I, I, I know you're the guy that spoke last week. You're Tom Schrader, the pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church. I'd say, well, I, I don't want to pick a fight with you, but I just got to tell you, I'm not him. You're confusing us. I mean, I am short. <laughs> I, I, I'm probably about as pudgy as Schrader, and, and, and I am semi-funny and not a bad speaker, but I'm telling you, I'm Jamie. I, I, I'm not Tom. And, and what if this guy persisted? What if this guy persisted that I am not Jamie Rasmussen, that I'm Tom Schrader? He was absolutely convinced of that in his mind. Think about this with me, gang. This is kind of an inane example. But at the very least, it'd be hard for he and I to have an ongoing relationship. Give me a head nod that you understand that, right? I mean, we might want to even commit the gentleman, you know. But it'd be hard to have an ongoing relationship with somebody who sees you as your not. See, see, this works in marriage, too. You know, we do a lot of marriage counseling around here. How many times have couples gone through this scenario? I know Kim and I has, and that is that Kim will say to me in a tender moment, I don't think you really understand me. I know it's a loaded thing when she says that, but I, I don't think you really get me. I don't think that, and essentially what she's saying is, I don't think you're seeing me for who I really am. Or how about with our children? I've gone through that with my kids. I try hard to understand them and love them for who they are, but we also have an image of what we want them to be. Give me a head nod that you understand that. And there's a tension there. And yet at the end of the day, our children really want to be seen for who they are. Here's my point. Why would it be any different with God? 
But why in the world would we think that when it comes to God, we can make him out to anything we want him to be, and he's going to be okay with that? Somebody once said, I love this quote, he said that, 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 that God created humankind in his image, and ever since then, humankind has been returning the favor, Right? I mean, God made us in his image, and we're wonderful and beautiful and smart and creative and all that stuff, and we return the favor to God by basically saying, well, I want you to be this, I want you to be that, I think this, I think that. God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us through his son. And when we ask the question, well, big whip, who is your son? He says, my son is me. It's called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three distinct persons. Jesus is God come for you and I. And trying to see him any other way, quite frankly, just at the very least stunts your spiritual growth. At the very most, it keeps you from understanding and even having a relationship with Almighty God as he is. Why Jesus? It's because of his identity which is God come for you. And now, believe it or not, there is more. There's one more thing in the 13 minutes we have remaining that Hebrew one, Hebrews 1 tells us as to why Jesus. And this is really, really important as well because it really is a, a two-fold answer. And, and it's this, uh, because of what he has done. So the first thing that we say to people and even ourselves as to why Jesus, it's because of who he is. But then the second thing we need to see that Hebrews 1 brings home to us is it's also because of what he has done. Why do Christians so focus on Jesus Christ? Because he has done something for you. He has done something for me. He has offered something to all of your friends, family, and neighbors that they could never do for themselves. And what is that? Look at verse 3. It says, oh, that what he did was he provided a solution to our sin problem. Look at verse 3. It says, when he had made, now watch this, purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, it's, it's hard to see it as it is right there, but that, that one sentence there is covering <laughs> like the entire span of Jesus's life here on earth. It's basically saying he was, he was born here as a baby, he grew up as a man, and then he went to a wooden cross where he made purification for our sins. We'll get to that in a minute. And then he was buried, and then he was rose, rose again on the third day, and then he ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. But the question becomes, so this is Jesus' entire life, the question becomes, what does it mean when it says that he made purification for our sins? That word purification is not hard to understand. Uh, even in the original language, it simply means to cleanse, to make clean. It pictures something dirty that you wash, and now it's not dirty anymore. That word sin simply means anything that dirties us, (laughs) anything that makes us unclean. And so the implication or backdrop of this passage here is that we've all been infected by sin, we've all experienced its destructive consequences in our life, and that in Jesus we now have a way out, what the book of Romans would call a new and living way of forgiveness. In other words, this is the core of the gospel. We're bumping into the core of why Jesus came. And it was because we all are born separated from God. We all feel the distance. We all long for him but can't seem to find our way to him. Jesus is the one 
who came to bring us back to God. So watch this. He is God because he came for you, and what he came for you to do is to bring you back into a life-giving relationship with Almighty God. And don't miss this, gang. It all centers around your need for forgiveness, your need to not feel so guilty about everything in your life, and finally find freedom when it comes to your spiritual life. You know, I, I, I want to give you, again, another inane example. So this is kind of the, the message of two inane uh, illustrations, but I, I think these work. I, I want you to imagine that you have um, offended your neighbor. <laughs> that won't be hard for somebody to imagine, but you, you've done something to offend them. Maybe your, your sprinklers went off and flooded their yard, or you know, a wall fell down, or a tree fell down. You've done something to offend your neighbor, and, and say, even though you tried to fix it, you're too ashamed to seek an apology, and so you kind of avoid your neighbor. Uh, but one night, your neighbor comes over to your house and knocks on your door, and you open up the door, and the second you see your neighbor, your heart begins to sink. But your neighbor, before you can say anything, looks at you and says, you know, I know what you did. I just want you to know it's okay, and I forgive you. Now, now imagine in that scenario how absurd it would be if you were to do this, slam the door in your neighbor's face <laughs> and say, I don't need forgiven, I didn't do anything wrong, and send your neighbor back to his or her house. That would be a stupid and silly thing to do. No, my guess is you would feel incredible relief that your neighbor was so kind and generous, maybe you'd invite him or her in for a cup of coffee, and you begin build, rebuilding the relationship. That's what most normal people would do. But you see, here's my point. When it comes to God and what he has done for us in Jesus, you look around, the many, many people today do the absurd. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we have offended him with our sin and that our sin has separated us from him. Now, pause on that for a second. Many of us think our biggest problem is that our marriage is in trouble or that we don't have enough money or that a job I'm in I hate or my kids aren't doing well. And don't get me wrong, those are all very, very real problems. But, but you know God, who has a better vantage point than us, says our biggest problem is none of that. <laughs> our biggest problem has to do with him. Our biggest problem is that though our marriage might not be what it wants, or our kids or our money or our job or whatever it might be, all that pales when we realize that we're born in a fallen state, separated from God for all of eternity, and God knows us, he's got the big picture, and he says, your biggest problem is with me. Because every time we fail, every time we sin, that sin separates us from him. And again, many of us feel this even if we don't admit it. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we struggle. And so we're ashamed and we shy away from God. But here's what God does, and this is what Christmas is all about. He comes knocking on the door of our lives. He visits this planet in Jesus. And make it personal for you. He comes for you. And he starts knocking on the door of your life. He says, I went to a wooden cross. I bore your sin upon myself. I was in the grave for three days. I rose on the third day. We're going to meet at Easter to celebrate that one. And then I ascended into heaven where I sit down in the majesty on high with God the Father. And I'm knocking on the door of your life. And what Jesus asks us to do is recognize who he is, recognize what he's done for us, and then believe. That's what the gospel is. 
We've been studying the Gospel of John. We're going to get back to it this next year because we're about a third of the way through. And I'm telling you, Gospel of John just says, believe, 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 believe. Just trust that what Jesus has done for you is enough. And you're in. That's the Gospel. But we do two things that, again, going back to that neighbor analogy, that are just almost crazy. The first thing we do is we say we haven't sinned. Some of us say to our neighbor, well, I didn't do anything wrong. So my sprinkler failed. So the tree fell. So the wall came down. It's not my fault. And we do that with God. We say, yeah, God, I'm not perfect, but you know what? You got awfully high standards. And we go, you know, and we almost make it sound like we're victims and that none of us are responsible for our own behavior and our own actions. And that might work at work, might work with your friends. The problem is it doesn't work with God. You know why? I'll just plainly, because he's God. He's perfect. You won't measure up to him, and you have no defense with him. But we deny that we have sin. And again, I've said for years, if you deny you have sin, then the conversation stops right there. You don't have a need for God then. You're in denial. But, but if you are at all open to the fact that maybe you need forgiveness from God, that you need eternal forgiveness in order to have eternal life with God, then he calls you to believe, and this is again where the inaneness comes in, and that is that we reject the cleansing offer that Christ offers. So again, some don't deny that they sin, they're honest about their human nature, but then when they hear about Christ, Christ's offer of forgiveness and his knocking on the door of their lives and to say, believe and trust in me, you know what I hear them say? Well, that's awfully narrow, isn't it? I mean, come on, there's five major world religions. And you guys are saying Jesus is the only way? You're saying he's the only one that can forgive me of my sin? I love how Henry Nouwen once said it when he was alive. Nouwen was, very, Nouwen was a very humble guy. And at one point, somebody asked Henry Nouwen, Yale professor, and, you know, gone to work with the poorest of the poor up in Toronto. And somebody asked Nouwen, dude, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way? And Nouwen looked at this guy and he said, well... He's the only way I found. Which again, I know isn't strong enough for some evangelicals, but that's a humble approach. I would argue he is the only way, but maybe sometimes what we need to say to our friends is, he's the only way I have found. What's your answer? See, this is what I ask people a lot. What's your answer to your sin problem? <laughs> I mean, if not Jesus, what are you gonna do? You know what the number one answer to this is, by the way? If you ask the average American who admits that they are fallen, who admits that they're flawed, what is it that you're going to do when it comes to, to God about your sin problem? The answer is self-atonement. I will self-atone. I will live the best life I can. I'm going to do good works. And in doing that, the scales are going to balance out, and God has to be pleased on that final day that I've done all that I can. And you're going to roll the dice and hope that your good works are good enough. You're going to self-atone for the things that you have done. There's only one flaw in that plan. And you guys got to see this. And that is that though that plan might work with your wife, it might work with your kids, it might work with your friends. In other words, you offend them and you can maybe do enough good works to prove to them that you're still acceptable and lovable. The problem is you're dealing with God. And God says that the smallest sin you've ever committed is a stench in his nostrils. I'm not trying to be mean about this. This is God who says that. And God, by his very nature, think about it with me philosophically, cannot be in the presence of sin. He is pure light. He is pure holiness. He is God. 
I mean, when the angels sinned, this is for another sermon, he kicked them out of heaven <laughs> because he can't be in the presence of sin. So as long as you and I have unforgiven sin in our lives, there is a separation between us and God. And so honestly, if your logic is, well, hey, I'm only 48% sin, but I'm 52% good, so I think God's going to accept me, there's flawed logic in that. Again, it might work for your spouse, because your spouse might say, I'll accept 52%. <laughs> but God can't. He has to have 100% in you. And it doesn't mean you need to be perfect. It needs, means you need to be forgiven. It, it means when Jeremiah says that his mercies are new every morning, somehow that has to be true for you. And now let's bring this all full circle and wrap it up. All of that centers on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who came for us. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life. Jesus is the one who died for you. So that you don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live waking up every day wondering who God is and where he is. You believe and trust in Christ. And you enter in, if you will, to that sweet spot when it comes to your relationship with God. I've said it this way for years. I don't know any other way to say it. But, you know, I lived the first 17 years of my life, you know, being a liberal believer in God. I mean, I, I wasn't like an atheist. But I, mean, I remember when my dog, Wags, when I was about six, my dog, Wags, ate my sister's guinea pig. It was a bad night. And, <laughs> and it was a bad night. And I can remember being a six-year-old. And, and, and that was back in the days where, you know, dads were allowed to... Uh, uh, do corporal punishment on the dog when they did something bad. So I'm in the upstairs bedroom, my dad's in the basement, and he's having a talk with Wags, and uh, <laughs> Wags is not happy. And, and my sister's crying in her bed because her guinea pig is dead, eaten by the dog. And as only a six-year-old could do, I, I, I prayed. I said, oh, God, I pray that um, when my sister dies, <laughs> thought that hopefully would be soon, but when my sister dies, that she would see uh, her guinea pig in heaven. Uh, it's a prayer of a six-year-old. And, and I, I had little prayers like that all the time growing up. I wasn't an atheist, but I, but I did not know God. I did not have an intimate, vital, you know, this upward trajectory relationship with God. When I was 17 years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm not even sure I knew all what I was doing. I just knew that, that Jesus came for me, as I'm explaining to you today, that I, when somebody said, you know, you're a sinner in need of grace, well, I had empirical evidence for that one, and, and I knew that, and so... I said, well, I, I think I need Jesus. And here's the deal, gang. My spiritual life, and this is just my story, went from black and white to technicolor. I mean, the prayers of, hey, may my sister see your guinea pig in heaven. Well, I mean, I still pray things like that, but it, it's now so much more rich, so much more robust. I feel like I know God. And I feel like he knows me. And, and even on my worst day, when all my circumstances are kaput, <laughs> I have no loss of hope because my ultimate hope is where? In Jesus. As Jesus says, they can kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. And so when your soul is hidden in Christ and you're truly connected with God, there is nothing, nothing, as Romans 8 says, that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not death, nor life, nor demons, nor angels, nor anything that could ever befall us. That's why Paul the Apostle said when he was you know, clinging to driftwood in the sea, despairing even life itself, he said, but our hope is in God. And you see, that's the point, is that you can have a soul that reaches deep and rich 
in a vital, ongoing, technicolor relationship with God in which you wake up every day and his mercies in every morning. You know him. He knows you. But here's the point, gang. It all comes through Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he has God come for you. Why Jesus? Because he did something for you that no amount of self-atonement will ever accomplish. And he says, believe. He says, trust in him. So as you go through this Christmas season, there might be some of you here today, and let's just celebrate this day in which you believe for the very first time today. Again, you don't have to walk an aisle. You don't even need to necessarily pray a prayer with me. All the Bible says is, is at some point in your mind and heart, you're going to believe. You're going to trust and place your faith in him. Maybe right now that's happening for you. And, and if it is, I'm going to pray with you here in a sec to cement that burgeoning faith that you're having to place in Christ. For those of you who know Jesus, you know my prayer for you this season has been let's find some freshness in our walk with him. And so as you think about the incarnation, as you think about the deity of Jesus, as you think about who he is for you, I'm going to pray you find freshness in your walk with him this season. And for those of you who are still digging your heels in, I love you. And I care for you, and I'm in there, and I'm with you in that. Hang in there. Keep looking to him. Don't ever let that spiritual thirst uh, wane. Don't get lethargic. Uh, Jesus said, ask, and you will find. Seek, uh, knock, and the door will be open to you. And so continue to seek after him, because he loves you, and he wants to find you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear teaching of Hebrews chapter 1, that when it comes to the question as to why Jesus we get a real clear answer. God has spoken to us, and he's done so in his son. And his son is God come to earth. He is deity in human form, and he is the only one who is able to atone for our sins, offering purification for our sins that we so desperately need. And so, God, I pray that for those who today finally understand that and where they sit right now, here or at Cactus Mountain Valley venue or chapel or even online, uh, they place their faith in you right now. Right where they sit, they believe. They say, oh, God, thank you that you've revealed to me the nature of your son, Jesus. I believe and trust in him. And Lord, may they mark this day as the day that they came home to you. Lord, for those of us who are still pondering and thinking, God, may we continue to feel the thirst. May we continue to feel that God-shaped vacuum. And God, may you continue, as, as, as one poet said, to be the hound of heaven who hounds us each moment of each day. May we not be content until we find our contentedness in you. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, for those of us who do believe in your son, I pray, God, that amidst all the distractions, maybe even all the problems and issues of our life right now, may we laser beam focus on your son, Jesus, today and enter into this week, a very holy week, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus with joy that runs deeper than all the other stuff going on in our lives. Give us that, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas.